It's a jackalope carnival. Jack, jack, jackalope. Jackalope carnival. Hi, I'm Becca. Hi, I'm Eric. And you're listening to Jackalope Carnival, a sideshow of stories, a bi-weekly podcast where we explore the paranormal, the unusual, and the downright odd. Speaking of odd. Are you thinking about our sponsor? Because we picked up a sponsor, you know. I do know that. And it's real odd. Really? Here, let's just get here. Everyone listen. I think that we might we might be able to get a, a long-term relationship with these folks. It could be fruitful. My name is William Biederman, and I approve this message. Got malaria troubles, gout troubles, preternatural troubles, ear troubles, girl troubles, female problems, car troubles, man problems, male delivery issues, an issue from your facial orify, or is your humorous just out of balance? Try Biederman leeches. Mighty fine blood sucking invertebrates fresh from the crystal clear waters of Mingo County, West Virginia. Biederman leeches can't be beat. Biederman Farms got medical leeches, but don't you come and see? Biederman boys got mighty fine leeches for all your leechy needs. All their toilet paper is to ply. More fun than a stick in the eye. Boy, howdy how they'll suck you dry. You can't beat a Biederman leech. No, you can't beat a Biederman leech. Visit BeatWilly.com. B-E-A-T-W-I-L-L-Y.com. There, what do you think? Oh, that is some weird, creepy cures. So, uh, are um, we gonna we gonna send a contract with them? I, I we I think we have to. We don't really have any other sponsorship at this point. Mm. Beggars Fair can't point. be choosers. Fair point. Well, today's show is about creepy cures and bad medicine. And if your first thought, like I know Eric's was <laughs> when I said <laughs> the words "bad medicine," is that song by John Bon Jovi? You're my kind of folk. But um, bad medicine and creepy cures throughout history, they encompass quite a lot. So we decided to narrow it down and focus in on something that has been done by many cultures throughout history and is still in practice today. The use of medical leeches. What are the chances that we would pick up that sponsor this week? I I mean, it's pretty incredible because they didn't even know we were doing medical leeches. No idea. Leeches, they're pretty gross, though. They're slimy, gelatinous, (laughs) undulating vampires, vampires. Um, And I think they should probably stay at the bottom of the pond. (laughs) You know what? There's something that I actually um, have a familial connection with, believe it or not. I can't wait to hear where this goes. (laughs) No, um, this is something like since I was a kid, um, when my grandmother was still alive, she would tell me stories that when she was a little girl in Italy, um, her grandmother, so my great-great-grandmother, would take her to nearby villages around L'Aquila in Italy, and they would use the leeches on sick people. So that always really fascinated me and also repulsed me. So you're like five years old, grandma, what's leeches? You know, this was over 100 years ago, so let's not imagine this is a common practice there now. Uh, No pun intended, the practice of leeches held on for a little longer than you would have guessed. And so we're going to be talking about leeches as a unifying principle, but we also found some pretty interesting tidbits along the way. Millions of leeches. Leeches for me. Okay. Um, 
That you know, I'll be fair. That was in my head the whole time. The whole time. <laughs> how how far? So how far back did you go in your research this week? Uh, real far back, way back. I took the way back machine um, because bloodletting is in itself something that's been done, like I said, for thousands of years. It's believed to have started in ancient Egypt. We really don't know. But what we've found, we as humans, is that there's a papyrus called the Ebers Papyrus. It was where we have written record of bloodletting. It's the first written record. And that's from about the 16th century BCE. Oh, wow. Yeah. and way um, before Galen, because I was going to blame Galen for all this. No, before, way before. Yeah, like thousands of years before Galen. Yeah. And it was also known to be practiced in China, Arabia, India, Europe, for different reasons in Mesoamerica, but the bloodletting has been done. Now, this papyrus that I'm talking about, the Ebers papyrus, was taken from a tomb in Egypt in the 19th century, because that was kind of all the rage, wasn't it? Taking things from tombs yeah. in the 19th century. That's like, I feel like that's what they did as Victorians. They had seances and in, um, pillaged tombs. But anyway, especially <laughs> I from Egypt, that was all, the, hmm? that was all, especially Egypt. That was definitely how you made yeah. your mark in society. I mean, to be fair, there were some creepy cures having to do with use of actual mummy parts. But that's for another another day, I'm afraid, another podcast. This particular papyrus was thought to have been written in the, 15th, the 16th century, but have been copied from many earlier works. So it's kind of like a best of greatest hits of cures. And um, so we don't really know how long bloodletting has been um, something that humans have done as a cure. The these scrolls are really fascinating. This, along with one that was found right next to it, called the Smith Papyrus. That's a really odd name for an Egyptian person. <laughs> yeah, well, they were by the people who translated them, and uh, sadly, the Ebers Papyrus, which is right now you can see it, it's on display in Germany at the University of Leipzig. They bound it into a book. They cut the papyrus. Ooh, they made a codex. Yeah. And, you know, in the 19th century, they would have thought, oh, it's much better, safer in a book. So this is things that people in the 1800s had a few different ideas of than we do now. But they are bound into a book now. And they give us this unique information and insight into medicine and life in ancient Egypt. And it's fascinating, but I have to say some of it is er, creepy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to be... To be fair, right? I mean, a lot of medicine involves, you know, the the yucky stuff, right? I mean, literal blood and guts is what we're talking about here. Cat poop. We're talking about cat poop. Oh, well, that one. (laughs) (laughs) Touche. So much, you know, I I actually read large chunks of this. Um, You can get it online. It's available in English translation. Again, it's called the Ebers Papyrus, and you can get it free online. And I spent way too much time reading this. And because of the aforementioned, I think maybe 101 miscellaneous uses for dung might be (laughs) (laughs) a good title or healing with mice. I'm not quite sure, but there were some things in there that was just really interesting. And I highly recommend giving it a little go because, yeah, there's, like I said, cat poop. It really makes the whole scarab thing make a lot more sense now. Healing with cat poop. So the Ebers papyrus, it does have some ideas about theory. So this isn't just a medical papyrus. This is medicine and religion. 
So there are chants that you say, there are things that you do, but there are also chants that you say. What's really interesting about it is as much as I'm making fun of them for using dung or mice, um, some of these just things that basically would probably go into the landfill anywhere else, or at least into the, you know, compost pile, they would use them as cures and, and really check it out. You see it. I am not exaggerating, but we do realize that they have a pretty good idea about our circulatory system. They understand the heart, although they see it as being a well where blood collects rather than being a pump, but they have um, extensive knowledge of veins and arteries, etc. Hmm. Um, maybe not using those same words. Mm-hmm. However, um, one of their theories is that the heart is too full of blood and at times air. In certain parts of the body, you can get too much air or too much blood. So they're talking about imbalances. However, it's not until the Greeks that refine this type of thinking about balances and imbalances in the body that it becomes a dominant thought in Western medicine. So I am aware that China has a whole nother idea of balance in Asia and India. There are all these ideas going on. We're going toward the West in this one. Um, so the this thought in Western medicine starts around the 5th century BCE with the theory of the four humors. And this theory of the four humors, or this theory of four elements is where it starts, and then we get the four humors from this, is an important development in medical knowledge. And it starts with some of the thoughts of Aristotle. But Hippocrates, you know, the Hippocratic Oath, um, famous Greek doctor, essentially, he's credited with developing this theory. And the Greeks believed that the four elements that made up all matter on earth were also linked to human character bodily fluids, seasons, so like heat, cold, etc. And this was the four humors. I took, uh, I have an undergraduate degree in art history, along with other things. (laughs) And (laughs) one of them, when we did so many paintings with the four humors, that was something that I always found pretty fascinating. So it was, wasn't it phlegm, blood, black bile, and what was the fourth one? That would be yellow bile. Yellow bile, okay. (laughs) How do you get that That's good, though. How do you get out the yellow bile? I mean, because, yeah, you get out the blood by, like, obviously, you know, aforementioned leeches. But, like, if you're overly, like, yellow, if you're bilous in a yellow way, what do you do with it? I don't know. I don't know, but I can tell you about some art history depictions of it. So, yeah. (laughs) And how do you get out phlegm? Well, so the phlegm. (laughs) Phlegm was a calm person. It was winter and cold and moist. I know a lot of people hate that word. I apologize for using it. And water. Um, blood is happiness, cheeriness, spring, hot. Right, and again, the word sanguine comes from this. I'm right? going to use the M word moist. <laughs> <laughs> Choleric was yellow bile. It was active. And, you know, these, these humors that I'm going through, they are in balance and they're mingled, you're good, you're in health. But if they're out of proportion, you can come sick. To live a healthy life, healthy humors. You got to have that balance of your humors. So the thing is, is if you have a fever that makes you hot, and hot relates to too much blood, sanguinous. Mm -hmm. And so if you have too much blood, you just got to let it all out. And so you needed a bloodletting, and that's how that would have been treated. Mm. (laughs) 
<laughs> so this theory lasted much longer, and that was what I remember from art history classes. Uh, lasted much longer than one would imagine. <laughs> yeah, like right. <laughs> yes, like you know, well into the the United like, States' uh, history is yeah. what I was reading so, about. Or you know, up, or your grandmother's to- talking about it. For goodness' sakes. Yeah. So, I mean, and I have, yeah, my grandmother was born in 1906 to be fair, but um, right. yeah, it, it lasted a, quite a bit longer and some of it still persisted up until, so they were saying like, it's about the 1800s when this practice stops being kind of the norm, but it still does persist in some areas and some doctors. So there's a lot of different ways to do this to let out that bad blood. And that's where we actually get the term bad blood. There's bad blood between them. Hmm. So you can do cupping, which I knew about cupping, but I didn't know that cupping was actually done. You can scrape the area and it's thought to get out like surface blood from the skin, not from your veins. Um, but cupping is I've, also I've done used. cupping before, actually. Yeah, but not the kind where they take your no. blood. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> not, not, not the bleedy kind. The, uh, yeah. Just the, I'm sitting in a nice room and someone's playing like the plinky plinky music and yeah. Yeah, I've had friends who have tried it and they've told me it's really relaxing. Yeah, it's but nice. It's one of its uses is to actually extract blood, Um, lancing, scarring, slicing, but one of the most efficient ways, and I think kind of elegant in its design comes from nature. And that is, of course, Eric, you want to sing it? (laughs) Leeches. The the leech song. (laughs) Millions of leeches, leeches for free. Millions of leeches. Sorry. Leeches are not free. They we will find that out later. No, Biederman Farms has made quite a, uh, a tidy sum selling the old leeches. Yeah, and to you. be fair, if y'all are interested, uh, YouTube, which I watched too many, too many YouTube leech videos, there was one that I kind of skipped over, but it was basically how to farm leeches for fun and profit. So hate to dig into Biederman's profits. Man, Eric, now they're never going to sponsor I know, right? us. I know. We, we're going to lose that sponsorship. I just... I'm so sorry. So leeches that are used in bloodletting, they're called medicinal leeches, and there's their specific variety of leech, um, Hirudo medicinalis. And they use a combo of mucus and suction to stay on their host. And they can suck out about 10, 5 to 10 milliliters of blood at one feeding. And if they just added a little um, bile into that, they could get all the humors involved. Yeah, like where are the bile leeches? That's what I want to know. And there is your band title for the week, the bile leeches. (laughs) The bile leeches. For whoever is keeping track of our band names, there you go. Mm, yeah, nice. Flim. It's better than the phlegm leeches. I mean, that's like the hardcore. <laughs> that's their hardcore outlet. I just, I don't even want to hear that again. I never want to hear that combination <laughs> of words again. Moist phlegm leeches. <laughs> <laughs> then once again, our our listenership is just halved. <laughs> All right. Well, he'll, Eric will edit that out, I promise. So, <laughs> Will I? Maybe, maybe not. So, like I said, this, this lasts a long time. Um, there's different ways of doing it. And leeches can grow in blood to almost 10 times their own weight. So... Eric, tell us a little about, I mentioned leeches in 
ancient Greece and Egypt. Uh, tell me a little bit about leeches in the Americas. I Okay, let me do that. And let me tell you, let me first give my props here. So most of what I have here, there's, I, I did know a little bit about uh, colonial era and early leeches. Republic medicine. No, not leeches. Specific. I mean, yes, I, a little bit about leeches too, but I knew a little bit about um, early Republic and colonial era medicine, but I stumbled across while I was doing my research a paper written by – he's actually a medical historian. Uh, his name is Richard Harrison Shiryak. And if I'm mispronouncing that, it's likely. Um, and that's S-H-R-Y-O-C-K. And he has this great paper that I ran across that was simply titled 18th Century Medicine in America. And that's where I got most of my information from in addition to the things that I kind of already knew. But it, it really tells a very interesting story about how – really ancient, honestly, medical practices were in not really the early Republic. That's when things started changing, but how ancient medicine still survived well into the colonial era and that people were still talking about humors, which is an idea that goes back for millennia. And what I kind of was struck by and what I think that this paper really kind of highlighted is how medicine really changed when Louis Pasteur showed that there's a living world that's smaller, right? That's smaller than the, than the, what the human eye can detect. And that was just a revolutionary. It was a game changer. And before that, people didn't actually have a very good sense of what disease was. Now we think of disease as being like an infection by a specific pathogen or by a specific uh, virus or a, a bacteria. Back then, they didn't think that way. And that kind of explains, and I never put this all together before, but this makes perfect sense now. When you look at old death certificates, you know, like modern death certificates, okay, just so you don't think I'm a total weirdo, why do I know so much about modern death certificates? One of my jobs, I've actually had a ridiculous amount of jobs in my life. One of my jobs in my 20s was working for a bank. And my job was directing mail in this bank on the West Coast in Seattle. And in order for people to get the names of departed, deceased loved ones off of bank accounts, they would have to send the bank copies of death certificates. And that landed in my department. And so my job was to get death certificates out of their envelopes and direct them to the right place. And so for that year, I ran across literally thousands of death certificates. And I... It's a little morbid, but I started reading them. And cause of death is usually pretty specific, but it's pretty, you know, in line with medical science, you know. So we have people who die of like heart failure, which is a common one, or cancer. But you also have like, you know, specific diseases. And we think of those as being actual illnesses. But that wasn't the case. Back then, they didn't really describe illness as a, as a specific disease, but rather by its symptom. And so you find in old death certificates, people saying things like he died of um, chest swelling or heart swelling, you know, and, and, and which isn't a disease, right? Or like congestion of the lungs. Um, actually, when I was doing research for um, possibly a show we'll do in the future, in Edgar Allan Poe's death certificate, his cause of death is listed as brain congestion, which that's not a thing. Right. There's no such thing as brain congestion. So they're flying blind here. Right. They don't really know what causes disease. They only know what people complain about. Uh, they don't have a sense of germs or viruses or bacteria or things like that. 
kind of the human body is this black box, right? You you see kind of symptoms, you see a physical manifestation, but you don't know what's causing it. And so you're guessing at it. And so you're guessing at things like humors or you're guessing at things like bad air, right? Um, malaria, it literally means bad air. And, you know, we had this idea that impure air, impure food, impure water will make you sick. And fair enough, right? That's true. But they didn't know why exactly. And hence we get cures like, you know, stick a leech on them. You know, that'll get some of that bad blood out. Um, well, and to so, be fair, some of those theories lasted longer than we would think. <laughs> right. I mean, actually, this this type of medicine isn't completely without merit. I mean, they stump the Eve without knowing exactly why, they stumbled across things that worked. Right. Well, hygiene. Yeah, I know in the Civil War specifically, like they didn't know, you know, about this exactly what was going on, but they knew to stay away from the latrines. They didn't know exactly why they were getting diseases, but they kind of knew to stay away from certain things. And to be fair, like our, our bodies have you know, developed to around this, right? The reason why things smell bad to us is because our body is telling us don't eat that. The reason why we well, unless stay... you're doing ancient Egyptian um, medicine, I just <laughs> want to point out. <laughs> right, fair, um, right, but for the most part, right? I mean, there's a reason why universally things, you know, like human bodily waste smells bad to humans because we have developed so that we avoid that, right? Because that's bad for us. Um, but also things like plant medicines, which. Humans have used since literally before human recorded time. Some of them work. And, you know, I mean, a lot of them work. And yeah. people didn't know why. They just knew that if you took this particular plant when you had, you know, if you took willow bark when you had a headache, it made it go away. Uh, they knew that if you, you know, there were certain plants you could have for an upset stomach. You know, if you had um, mint tea, it would calm an upset stomach often. And that was just sort of like regular trial and error. And this sort of medicine is what we think of as medicine, quite honestly, for most of the colonial era. And what we think of today as medicine, as the highly scientific profession that it is now that requires, uh, you know, a large amount of schooling and an intense amount of training and rightfully so, right? I mean, doctors are learning an immense amount of knowledge uh, that we add to every year and doctors have to keep up to date with, uh, with the current knowledge because it's moving so quickly. That's not really what was happening for most of the, the colonial era from like the 17th and 18th century. And instead, what you had is you basically had people who became doctors because they apprenticed other, under another doctor. And what Dr. A might know and might have learned is going to be completely different from what doctor in another town might know because they're learning things that are learned by trial and error. Two other groups of people also became doctors uh, that we wouldn't think of as doctors today. Now, barbers, I know people know about like barbers being um, in the medical profession as such. But women often became the doctors of their home, right? And they were the ones who people turned to when, you know, the the children got a cough and they knew. Yeah, what that, I mean, that, that was my great, great grandmother and the leeches. She was the doctor of her area. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you had midwives doing basically the same yeah. thing, right? Taking care of women's health when it came to reproduction. But the other people that I found, this is very interesting. I didn't, I, I totally didn't see this one coming. But again, according to this paper by um, Richard Shiriak, that people turned to clergy during the colonial era. Um, I say this as a person who who counts a lot of clergy as um, as friends. 
holy cow, that's a terrible. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> like, but they would they would eventually learn because they had to, um, and they would they would pick up things also. But we don't normally think of your local you know pastor or preacher as some as a you know as a person who does medicine, but they did. They would come to do medicine, hopefully before you were on your deathbed. But you know, if you if everything's turned south, you know, it's one stop shopping at least. So you got that. Um, this is going to all change. This is going to change. Actually, the profession of medicine will become more professionalized um, late in the colonial era. So we get the first medical, formal medical um, training happening in Philadelphia in the 1760s. We have the colony's first medical school in Philadelphia. King's College, which will become Columbia University in uh, New York, will open soon afterwards. And this is providing um, professional medical training, but still, you know, they don't have germ theory yet. And so even though it's becoming something a little more professionalized and they can read the Latin books and they can read Galen and things like that, it's still not what we think of as modern medicine. Now, here's where things get really interesting. Turns out that these folks with their fancy medical degrees in the 1760s, at least, um, did not actually ensure that you'd be getting the best medical care possible because a lot of the medicine they were learning was theoretical in nature and not very practical to the point where in the 1700s, if you ended up getting shot and that tended to happen because people liked to duel back then, if you were poor and the bullet didn't hit anything um, that would kill you fairly quickly. Your chances of surviving that gunshot were better if you were poor than if you were wealthy. And the reason for that is wealthy people could hire doctors to dig the bullet out. And these are doctors who had no clue about germ theory. And so washing your hands or washing instruments wasn't going to happen. And so it turns out that wealthy people who were getting treated for gun for, you know, for, for bullet wounds uh, were dying of infection later. Whereas poor people just sort of, you know, I think the joke about Andrew Jackson, who, while he wasn't poor, he grew up a little more humble. The joke was that he had so many bullets in them that when he walked around, he clinked um, from all the, the lead hitting each other. But, you know, he survived all of his gunshot wounds and lived long enough to, you know, wish that he could have killed his vice president. Literal last words. But anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. So medicine is still um, – it's becoming a profession, but it's still not what we think of as modern medicine. And that's not really going to change much. And honestly, women as the, the local healers of the town or the household are still going to be doing a lot of the work. And in African-American communities, both enslaved and free, African-Americans will have their own system of medicine, um, some of which will have some overlap with other folks in rural areas using um, plant medicines. But also there's um, medical practices that have overlap with spiritual practices that survived from Africa as well. And you had people that were recognized as people who knew medicine or informal doctors in the African-American community as well. And this is all happening in the 17 and 1800s. We really see the development of modern medicine, though, around the Civil War era. And the reason for that is Louis Pasteur's 
basically his discoveries are revolutionary, right? Once it's discovered that there's a whole world of living things that are smaller than the human eye, and we get an idea of about, about bacteria and then eventually um, viruses, um, everything that we know about medicine changes from what we knew thousands of years before that. And from that point forward, medicine kind of starts developing in a way that would look a little more familiar to us. Now, I do want to say one more thing um, before I kind of wrap up my portion here. And that is, there are times, though, when what is old is new again. And even though medicine took a giant step forward uh, when it comes to germ theory and finding out the cause of disease, some of the older ideas about kind of more holistic health, and by holistic here, I don't mean like, you know, a catch-all phrase that means... I feel like holistic has come to mean yoga, but like, like, but what I mean is like, you know, wellness of the whole person, exercise, fresh air, things like that. There's, there is space for that too. Right. And even herbalism. I believe we will talk about some of that in a later episode, actually, not to give hints away. Right. It's a little, little teaser there for you, but you know, things even like herbal medicine, those things that you would think of maybe as uh, kind of out of date or old fashioned, some of those still uh, stick around. They stick around because some people find relief in them. Well, and sometimes some of these things stick around because we have germ theory and it's like, okay, well, germ theory happened at this date. So they would have known that doesn't mean people would have adopted it quickly. Um, and we kind of know that, that not necessarily while there are theories, while there are ways of doing stuff, sometimes the older physicians, sometimes um, more rural communities wouldn't have adopted them quite as quickly as maybe places in the city. So while we do have these, we don't always see it in practice a year after it's discovered, et cetera. That's basically one what the, I got. That's all I got. So what, what do you well, have, Becca? Uh, well, one of the things I was I thinking about, about and I'm going to go back, but I was reading the book, I believe it's, I think it's just called The Great Pandemic, and I believe it's John Barry. And if I've gotten your name wrong, I apologize, John Barry. But he was saying that even in, you know, 1918, there were people that were doing bloodletting. There were doctors that were doing bloodletting in 1918 with the pandemic. <laughs> Where? The, well, in America. And part of the reason of this was because, um, as we know, in 1918, that pandemic mm. targeted younger people. Right. And so what you had was older doctors coming out of retirement, um, older doctors coming out of retirement that were like, well, this is what I did when I first started. This is what I did my whole practice and I'm going to do it now. I'm imagining somebody being like, come on, boys, they need us. And like picking up a jar of leeches from his windowsill. But, but I knew quite this day would come. Yeah, but there are accounts of this happening. So it's just interesting. It's like, well, yes, however, um, and I think that we can say today with new medical technology, um, and we see this literally, you know, in the year 2021, where there's new medical technology, but people are questioning it. There's a new way of vaccination and people are kind of questioning it and aren't really ready to quite jump on that. So they, they were no different than this basically. I ran um, into something very interesting leeches. when maybe I was with the leeches. <laughs> Before we get to leeches, can I can I share this one thing though that I found um, interesting in actually in this paper again? Did you Please know do. that um, George Washington inoculated the Continental Army against smallpox? Yes, I did actually. 
Yeah, I did. Sorry. I mean, no. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Either way, it's really cool. And um, it actually, you know, kept the, the Continental Army from catching smallpox, which was a super deadly disease. Did you know George Washington used leeches on – well, had leeches used on him a few times. <laughs> My understanding is is that some, some suspect that may have contributed to his death, the, that he – excessive yeah. bloodletting. I'm not saying bloodletting is great. I'm saying that actually in that time, and I'll go to that, that excessive bloodletting was something that was kind of enthusiastically being practiced. <laughs> and we start to see it in the 19th century with a certain doctor. And his name's Dr. Francois Broussaille. And um, he's a French doctor from Paris and really credited with the use of bloodletting and the use of leeches in the 19th century, especially in France. Um, Can we call him Fran the father of leeches? Because that's kind of awesome. <laughs> That's a kind of an awesome band name too. Father of Leeches. Father, Maybe that's, that's their first hit. Father yeah. of Leeches. I I believe that's the first hit for what was it? Moist <laughs> Flem Leeches. <laughs> All right. So um Dr. Bursais, I cannot pronounce that, forgive me. He, like many others, he believed so inflammation at this time was something that was being talked about that inflammation in the body was because there was an excess of blood at the site. That's why inflammation happened. And he wholeheartedly believed this theory. And while he was known for the aggressive use of bloodletting, so lancing, etc., he also used leechcraft, especially <laughs> in areas of the body um, where an incision would be difficult to control. Oh, so you, you can turn the volume down. Nose, ears or nether regions. So you would place the leech where maybe you couldn't do any other kind of bloodletting. So up your nose, check in your ear, check. And yeah, nether regions. So leechcraft is leechcraft is no joke. Leechcraft is no joke. So they would be placed directly on the area of body that was inflamed. Um, but he was accused of being a little too uh, hmm, enthusiastic <laughs> in his bloodletting. Oh my gosh. Like he would, he would blood, they would do bloodletting and purging. So you would bleed them and also purge them, meaning they would take um, diuretics. They would take um, M M things that would make them throw up. Like epic. Um, yeah. So, there were quite a few other things going on, and that possibly was what happened to George. But leeches were used out. a little excessively as well, because at that point it was like, hay fever? How about some leeches? Arthritis? I got leeches for that. You got leech fever? I got more leeches. There's not really such a thing as leech fever that I know of. All right. <laughs> so, I got a fever, and the only thing that will cure it is more leeches. <laughs> so in the 19th century, there's so popular that there's actually a leech shortage in Western Europe. And I was reading the article. So my article that I enjoyed for this was the Cambridge Journal of Medical History has an article by Tunis Willem von Henning. And he gives us an account of a French anatomist named Jean-Baptiste Sarlandier, who attempted to solve the issue by inventing a mechanical leech. So Sarlandier said his mechanical leech We have veered completely into mad science at this point. Like we no, were flirting I mean, with they, it for they, a long time. Eric, and they still have, we'll go into this. This is, this is not. So he says <laughs> his mechanical totally leeches or his blood pump is better because it's more practical than live leeches. And those live leeches were mysteriously dying and becoming more expensive. 
he estimated that the French government was spending 1.5 million francs per year, which I was trying to find the equivalent of this in dollars today, and it was roughly 1.8 billion. I don't know if that's correct, um, but you get the idea. That's a lot of leeches. France was spending a lot of money on leeches. And he's like, hey, this is too many leeches. So the article <laughs> that I was reading in this um Cambridge Journal of Medicine is brilliant because it comes with a chart and that chart shows exactly how many leeches were being imported into France from 1827 to 1836. And spoiler, it's millions of leeches. <laughs> so Hundreds. I was reading Hundreds. a little bit about, about leeches uh, when I was doing research and turns out, by the way, did you know that the there are four different species that were once all called the same species of medical leech that to the naked eye look pretty much exactly the same, but like their genomes are different. And some of those species of leeches, like you were saying, ended up um, really becoming difficult to find in the wild uh, because of overharvesting. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it's funny that you're actually saying that. He was our, one of his arguments were like, look, this is not only convenient but the, and money saving, but here's the thing. Leeches, you know, there are different. So you can't tell how much blood a leech is going to take. You can't see how much they're taking. They're different sizes. They have different appetites. You don't want one of those dieting leeches. No, you leeches, want Biederman leeches, quality <laughs> leeches for the 21st century. Good job. Good mm -hmm. job in working that in. They'll, they, maybe they'll keep us now. Hopefully. Um, but with this device, you can see the blood filtering in the glass domes. And these domes look like cupping cups. Um, if you don't know what that looks like, little jam pots, or for my Southern Americans, such as myself, jelly jars. So anyhow. I, I was hoping <laughs> that the artificial um, – I was kind of hoping that that the artificial leech was be like a Frankenstein leech. Like it had like little like electrodes sticking out of its like little It, it is kind of a sentence from horror. And he created artificial mechanical leeches. And then, yeah, I want to hear like – after that, you know, but um, medical leeches did start to wane a bit in Europe um, as other therapies and ideas are introduced. And some doctors were actually really squeamish about using them and never use them at all. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, we talked about that. And here's the interesting thing is that while they went out of favor in 2004, the FDA, so the Food and Drug Administration of the United States, um, approved leeches for use medicinally in America. And so leeches are used in modern medicine. Uh, same thing, though, a lot of doctors don't want to use them. But from what I understand, they use them in plastic surgery. Because when skin and tissue is put on to a site, our bodies are really good about being able to plump pump blood in, but we're not so good about that tissue pumping blood back out. And so they said it's like leeches were made for this purpose. So leeches can drain those conveniently very well in a way that makes them particularly necessary, but particularly handy just for that. And having so, a natural anticoagulant in their saliva helps Exactly. A lot. Exactly. So yeah, there's the story of... Uh, Leeches. <laughs> well, if you're still listening, <laughs> glad you're here. 
<laughs> um, but thank you for joining us this week. We hope you aren't too taken aback by our leech talk and come and listen to us next week. And please, if you do have any leech needs, visit Biederman Farms for all of your medical leeches. Jackalope Carnival! Like your death certificate, things appropriate for children. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway...